All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. As we know, many of us know, we've been going through this series in the book of Ephesians, and by the Lord's providence on Father's Day, it's brought us to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And my plans are to actually divide this message up into three messages. So this morning, I want to look at provoke not your children to anger. Lord willing, this afternoon, the instruction of the Lord, and then next Sunday afternoon, the discipline of the Lord as we understand what we are to do as fathers within our home. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you read this passage? When you read this passage, fathers, or when you read this passage, saint, how do you read this passage? My guess is, is that most of us read it as in bring them up in the discipline that is punitive discipline and instruction of ourselves. In other words, when we read this passage, we gloss over the other aspects of this verse and think, well, I need to raise my children properly. I need to raise my children rightly. I need to instruct my children what is good, good manners, handling themselves properly within society, being good citizens. Or as one pastor said, as his children got into teenage years, he's just glad that they didn't murder somebody. So no murderers coming out of our home. People are children, Lord willing, going to church, being believers. But that is not actually what this passage is instructing our fathers to do. The word discipline here doesn't refer to spanking or yelling at your children or any type of thing like this. It actually refers to child training. Child training. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the child training and instruction. This word does mean to teach, but it has a nuance in it, and that is the correction. It is instructing someone in order to correct them. So just looking at the passage in general, fathers, do not provoke, do not stir up your children to anger, but in contrast, you are to rear them You are to raise them up in the child training and correction, not of what you think they ought to turn out to be, but of who? The Lord. You are to rear them up in the correction and child training 
in the same manner of which the Lord is raising you up and correcting you. Does everybody see that? This isn't some arbitrariness of mine in which I get to have my own personal standards of what goodness is or what I'm to be doing with my children. This is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think that many of our parents, and I would include myself in my younger years in which my children were at home, I fell short of this standard. And one of the reasons why I fell short of this standard, and this isn't laying blame anywhere, was the fact that I was ignorant. I didn't know. I had heard a lot of sermons on how to rear children. I had heard a lot of sermons on, you know, giving my children devotions and things like that. But really, the theology behind it and the motive of which I was to be doing it and the aim for which I was to be aiming for, I was completely ignorant of. And I suppose that in a good portion of our churches today, our fathers themselves are ignorant of this. Now I do want to say, as we just broadly taken a look at some of the word meanings here in this passage, I do want to say that if you are here and you are a believer, my assumption would be is that you will have a very tender conscience over these messages. I know myself, as I was reviewing this, and as I was typing things down, and then deleting what I didn't like what I wrote down, and then modifying and clarifying what I wrote down, I will just confess to you that I had to get off by myself and ask the Lord to forgive me. So I'm fully anticipating dads, moms, children, all of us, we will have some measure and some form of guiltiness which will come across our spirit. Our conscience will be bearing witness with what God said. Our conscience will be saying, that's right. And you and I have fallen short of those things. So I just want to confess that right up front that really my aim is not to make everybody feel guilty. I've already done that to myself. But having tender consciences before the Lord will bring all of us, I think, to some measure of a guilt of conscience. Even as believers, is this not true, we fall short of the glory of God. Only God is the perfect parent. Only God is the perfect parent. Now that brings us to this question. I'm just looking at this from a very general sense. If fathers are not to provoke our children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord then I need to know what is the aim of my child training and my correction. Is my aim to make me happy about my children? 
That is not to be the aim. Is my aim with my children merely so I won't be embarrassed by their behavior? The answer to that is no. In other words, ultimately it doesn't have anything to do with who? With myself. And it really doesn't ultimately have anything to do with my home. How people perceive my home. But ultimately, the aim of my child training and my instruction of correction to my own children is this. And I'm going to prove it after I say it. Their holiness. That is the aim and the aim of my child training is for my children, every one of them, to be what? Holy. Now, we know from this passage, if we just think about it, if you go back to Ephesians 1, as we looked at the very aim and eternal purposes of God the Father, that it says in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, God and Father, just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and what's the aim? That we would be... What's the first word? Holy and blameless before Him. Does everybody see that? Right here within our own book of Ephesians, we have the aim of all of God's working in our life as individual believers and as a church. That we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. That is God's eternal purpose. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 5, we saw this when it came to our husband's relationship to their wives. Ephesians 5 verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that this aim, verse 27, might happen, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be what? Holy and blameless. Do we all see that? So dads, fathers, as we're thinking about this on Father's Day... We're thinking about, okay, what is God's created aim for me as a father of whom God himself has given children to? My aim for my wife is that she would be holy. My aim for my children, this is what I'm arguing, is that God's eternal purpose would be brought to pass in their lives, that they would be holy. 
In fact, in the book of Ephesians, a variant of this Greek term that's translated holy is translated saints. Saints are holy ones. So all the saints have for their aim, for their own Christian life, is to be holy. The aim for the church in its preaching and teaching as God's people are gathered together is that I would present you holy and blameless before Him in love. Your aim, husbands, in your home for your wives. You have a family, but you don't have children, but you have a wife. It's not only for you to be holy, but for her to be holy. And if God gives you children under His blessing, then your aim for your children is the exact same what? It's the exact same thing. This one thing, it's this aim that you have that they would be holy. And being a saint, you are a holy one. And he mentions the word saint or holy one nine times in this book of only six chapters. Now that aim is the aim of Ephesians 6 verse 4. If the Lord's aim in our child training, in His child training of us, and in His correction of us, is our holiness, then this is to be our aim for our children. Now, I want to turn to one last passage, and we'll be spending more extended time in this passage, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, but I want you to turn to probably the chapter that deals with the discipline of the Lord in our lives, and that's Hebrews chapter 12. So turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to go through here and read it. Every time I get to the word discipline, I want you to think child training. I don't want you to think taking them out behind the barn. That's what we think when we think of discipline, don't we? I want you to think raising your children up. Child training. Hebrews 12. We have a situation where the Hebrews, believers, had had every possession that they owned confiscated by the government. Would you call that a severe providence? And they were under persecution. They were under reproach by lost people. And he says to them, verse 3, Consider him, that is Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten. How often do we forget this? And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as who? Sons. Now he's going to quote from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a father, Solomon, instructing his sons, his children. 
But the Lord uses this passage in reference to His raising up of us as children. Verse 5, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the child training of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved or corrected, instructed by him. Here's the reason. For those whom the Lord loves, he child trains, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So who's our model? If I'm going to raise my children, child training as to the Lord, and I'm going to correct them in righteousness as to the Lord, here I see how the Lord does it. Verse 7. It is for discipline, it is for child training that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without child training, of which all have become partakers, so how many of God's children partake of this child training program? All. If you are without discipline, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, Hebrews 12, verse 9, we've had earthly fathers to child train us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be submissive, subject to the Father of spirits, and live? Now note verse 10. For they, that is our earthly fathers, child train us for a short time as seemed best to who? Them. That's what I'm trying to correct. That we are not just raising our families according to what seems best for us. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, that is God, Child trains us for our good. What is the good? So that we may share His holiness. So everybody see my point? My point is, God's eternal purpose for every individual believer is to be holy and blameless before Him in love. Every pastor has this same heartbeat. Every husband is to have this same heartbeat. Every father is to have this same heartbeat. And it is true, every one of our children ought to have the same ambition. To be holy before the Lord. Now I think personally that that is missing. As someone has said, 
If you don't know what you're aiming for, you're very likely to hit it. In other words, you're just arbitrarily coming up with your own goal. He, God, disciplines us for our good. What is the good? That we would be holy. Now let's keep reading. Verse 11, Hebrews 12. All discipline, all child training for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And folks, let me just ask you, do you like being corrected? Just shake your head this way. <laughs> no. When I was a child, I didn't like being corrected. I don't like being corrected naturally as a father or a husband or a pastor. We have a sinful nature that hates correction. And it isn't going to change. So when we're corrected, and you don't take it in a proper attitude thinking to yourself, this correction is good for me. How many of us think that? And that the aim of this correction is so that I can bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, that I might be made holy. We're liable to get bitter about that. And this is exactly what the passage is exhorting us. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet... To those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So what should we do about this? Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now note verse 14. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification. There's our root word for holy. And the sanctification, without which no one shall see who. So all of God's children partake of God's child training purposes. All of us are under His rod as believers. The aim that God has for every one of us is our good. What is our good? Holiness. Being partakers of His holiness. Or if we're going to do a Romans 8, being conformed into the image of His Son. If we're going to do in Ephesians 5, bearing fruit. Everybody see that? This is critical if we're going to understand what this passage is really speaking to us about. If we're not partakers of this child training, then we are illegitimate regardless of what our mouths are professing. And believers, you know, you know that God's providence can be severe. Thank the Lord it's not always severe. 
but it can be severe. <clears throat> and the severity of it usually comes to us when we're not expecting it. If you had the American government show up at your door because you're a believer and confiscate your home and everything that's in it, would you call that severe? Probably unexpected. How would a holy one respond to something like that? Well, let me tell you what these believers did. This is amazing. They said to themselves, well, I have a more better and enduring substance in heaven. Would you call that a God-like response? And when I read that, I say to myself, woe is me, I don't think I would respond that way. This is what I mean when I say the aim that our fathers are to have, as we go back to Ephesians, that the aim of our fathers are to have with our children is <clears throat> their holiness. Now brethren, just like the word submission is out of favor today, the word holiness has been out of favor for years, decades, maybe even several lifetimes in American religious cultures. When I use the word holy, and I'm just going to take this <clears throat> even without proof, but I'm going to take it from portions within other parts of the Scripture, but I'm going to begin with the book of Ephesians. If I was to define what does it mean to be holy, it means to be separated from your former manner of life to walk in newness of life. This is what Paul's been arguing, right? If I was to use the book of 1 John, what do I mean when I say holiness? I mean that you love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. That there's nothing inside of us that's saying, I want that in the world. If I mean, what does it mean to be holy? I mean that it means to be possessed of God, to be owned of God. He owns me. I am His, what? Slave. I have been bought with a price. And when we talk about God being holy, is God holy? When we talk about God being holy, what we mean is this, is that He is the only unique one. No one like God. Now why is that important? It's important not that you and I should become odd, for oddity's sake, but if we're being conformed into the image of Christ, we're going to become more unlike the world. Unique. Not more friendly with the world. Not me taking my Bible and trying to see how much of the world's delicacies I can't enjoy as a believer. 
That will not be my aim. My aim is to be holy unto Him. Now that is the aim of our child training of our children, dads. And I think we all can agree that there's not one dad who has done this perfectly. Nobody. Not myself and not you. And if you think that you have, then you probably will be surprised when you stand before Christ at the beam of judgment. But it should be our heartbeat. It should be that which we're giving our energies to. Individually, corporately as a church, in our homes, with our wives, with our children, and our wives and our children all having the same ambition that we would be like Christ in everything. Or as the book of Ephesians says, that we're to grow up in Him in everything. Do we all see that? I think if you keep this in mind, it's going to help you not only instruct, but it's going to help you personally know what is the Lord doing in your life. He is trying to bring you to a point of holiness, a worthy walk, a submissive walk before Him. And let me just give a word of warning here. Parents, you cannot expect your home to walk in holiness or be submissive under your leadership while you are showing unsubmissiveness in your own life. Whether it be to the Lord, who you cannot see, or whether it be to leaders or government or bosses, whatever. I run into many, many fathers who think that they can be unsubmissive and then demand everybody else to be submissive to them. It doesn't doesn't work that way. Because we know that our children catch more than they hear. They follow our example. And I used to tell my children, why do you always follow the bad ones? Why don't you ever follow the good ones? Well, we know the answer to that, right? It's much easier to follow the bad ones than to have Christ work in your life for the good, for holiness. Now, brethren, every father is to be growing up in their responses to people within their homes. That means, dads, that you haven't arrived. You will always be under the Lord's child training attention. Just as with his wife, he loves his home in sanctification and in union with it. Fathers, this is your primary oversight. 
to rear up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not your wives. Do we all hear that? I was raised in a home that did not know the Lord. In my home, growing up, my dad believed, and parts of this is correct, that it's his responsibility to bring home the bacon. To go out and make a living. Bring money into the house. And it was my mother's responsibility to rear the children. That is, at best, today, that is the best the world can do. This passage says, whose responsibility is it to bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord? The Father's. Now this morning, I want to look, before I look at provoking, not provoking your children to anger, I want to look at the attitude our fathers are to have. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have a fascinating passage here. given to us by a very strong-willed man named Paul. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is addressing this church, this newly formed church. It was probably somewhere between eight weeks to three months old in the Lord. They were under severe persecution. And Paul gives to us the attitude. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though, As apostles of Christ, we might have exerted our, what? Authority. Okay, so let's pause here. Did Paul have authority? Does a dad have authority? Okay. But he's saying, now look, we have authority, but we really don't want to exert that authority. And no godly dad wants to have to exert authority. But what attitude did he have? Verse 7. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Does everybody see that? 
Our fathers have the primary and ultimate oversight of the child training and instruction of our children in our homes. And wives, you help them with this. You are a help. You help them with this. But our attitude is that we must walk before our home in a gentle fashion. Can a strong man be gentle? The world says no. Christ says yes. Our fathers should walk in our home with a tender care. How tender? Well, folks, if I really wanted to show worldly love, I might show a picture of a mother with a newborn child. She's holding that child very close to her. And you know how the family portraits go. The child is looking up at mother. And the mother's what? Looking down at the child. Why did you take a picture like that? Because it shows the tender care of the mother and the responding love of the who? Child. And you look at that and say, That's a mother. Fathers, this is the type of care that you're to have in your home. You are to give in your home a sacrificial love. You're to have the same type of fond affection as a nursing mother would have with her own baby. That goes against the world, doesn't it? And brethren, this is the type of affection that God the Father has for us. And what that means is, is that your children in your home, dads, must know that you love them sacrificially. They must know beyond a shadow of a doubt, whether they follow the Lord or not, they must know without a shadow of a doubt that you are living your life for the Lord that the greatest thing you want for your family is for them to be holy, to be saved, to walk in sanctification, to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. They must know this. Even if they disagree with it, they must know it. And this is exactly what Paul himself says. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day. Was Paul busy? Was he tender? 
Sometimes men will tell me, well, I just don't have, I'm too busy. I don't have the time. Paul's busy. He's working night and day. But he's doing it because of his love for Christ and God's children. How working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you, believers. That's saying what I just summarized. So, dads, we need to be gentle. We need to have tenderness in our nurturing of our homes. Isn't that what you expect of a pastor? Yes or no? You would expect a pastor to show tender care? Not only must fathers have the spirit, I'm just going to say, of a tender mother, they must also be a dad. And you'll notice here in verse 10, he says, Your witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a what? As a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you unto his kingdom and glory. There's the aim, holiness. In children, it does not work for you to justify your own unholiness by telling your parents, well, you're not being gentle with me. There are times where a father must be firm. He must come alongside of you and exhort you. When you come alongside somebody, you just don't walk beside them. You put your arm around them and they walk where you're what? Where you're walking. And encouraging. That just doesn't mean that everything you say is all happy. It means you're motivating them to walk in this way and imploring. You're commanding them to do this. No options like we read in our Scripture reading. Abraham, God said, he knew he would command his family. Did he not? Now, let me ask you this. What do you think about Isaac? (laughs) Did he turn out perfect? You think Isaac turned out perfect? No. (laughs) God didn't say, I know Abraham, that all his children are going to be perfect. He said, this is what I know about Abraham. He will command his family to walk in my ways. That's what he knew about Abraham. And dads, not only must your children know that you're living your life for the Lord that you love them sacrificially for the aim of their personal holiness, 
but your children must know that your life is credible in their eyes. Again, your children don't have to agree with everything, but they must believe that you're having a credible Christian life. That you live what you instruct to the best of the grace of God. That you are seeking to be what you're commanding them to be. I've given this illustration before, but it's kind of humorous, but back when I was little, we had Christmas and we had Santa and all that type of thing, and I really wanted a pop gun. The little gun goes bang, bang, not like the ones today. They look real and all this type of thing. This is, you know, you pull the trigger, it goes pop, okay? <laughs> and I woke up in the middle of the night, and the rule was you couldn't come out of your room, but I just, I just had to go see if I had a pop gun under the tree. I got down on all fours because I knew if my mother heard me, it would be death. <laughs> Not literally. I, I, I must have taken 10 minutes to open my door. I crept one little thing at a time to see if I could hear my mother rise up. I went all the way into the living room. Guess what was under the tree? And I got all excited. I took the gun out of there and I decided that I was going to go and surprise my parents. <laughs> now this is in the middle of the night. It just shows you that just like all of us, children aren't always normal. <clears throat> I went from fear of death to no fear at all, just with a pop gun. I took that gun, literally, I'm not making this up, I'm not exaggerating, I crept back down the hall. I crept into my parents' room. I got all the way over to my mother's side of the bed. So there's my mother, there's my dad, and they're, they're out of it. My heart was beating, and I decided, here we go. I took that gun, and I jumped up. I pointed that gun at them and went, Ready, Dad, Dad, Dad! And my mother jumped up out of bed and screamed at the top of her voice, Stop making noise! You're going to wake up your dad. Well, she had woke up my dad. If I hadn't woke up my dad, my mother would have woke up my dad. In fact, I think the whole neighborhood woke up. And I got the gun taken away from me for a time period and severely corrected that you do not do this in the middle of the night while your parents are asleep. Now that's a funny story, but here's the point. You want your children to be something while you're not being it. She was wanting me to be quiet. Was she quiet? No. And parents, we do that. 
Why do we do that? Because we have our own reasons why we get to do it and they don't. But it won't stand before God. We must be tender-hearted. And we must be firm. Everybody see that? Dads, that's what you and I must be. And I think anybody would understand that this is going to take growth. You're not, you don't come into the Christian life this way. You come into your Christian life, all different personalities, all different dispositions, but we come into the Christian life with all the baggage that we had all those previous years. This is the spirit that we must have. Now secondly and lastly, I want us to go back to Ephesians and I want to address, do not provoke your children to anger. Now I think having looked at the Thessalonian passage, I think it helps us to give an insight on what this is referring to. You dads cannot, you will not raise your children in the training and correction of the Lord if you attempt to do this in anger. You cannot use unrighteous anger to stir up holiness. Unrighteous anger only stirs up Unrighteous anger. And all of our children have a sin nature that's just waiting for some kindling. Just like you have a sin nature waiting for some kindling. It is a contrast. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. James 1, verses 19 and 20, I'll quote it for you. We must be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. What do you want for your children? Holiness, righteousness, justice, right? You want them to walk that way. You're not going to do it by using unrighteous anger. And fathers, we can be religious. We can be devoted to Christ, but if we don't know how to bridle our tongues, James says we deceive our hearts. This man's religion is worthless. And I'm afraid that many fathers have taught their children worthless religion. Because they do not have a bridle over their own passions and their tongues. Yesterday my wife and I were doing a cycling event down on the eastern shore and coming back, we stopped in at a Chick-fil-A. 
And as I'm prone to do, I was just kind of watching and looking around. And I saw a lady come and she grabbed one of the young men that were bussing the tables and asked if he could clean off the table and pointed out some things. And she went and sat down. She got her food. She was seen there a little while later. Another lady came in. This lady was facing me. I was looking this way. She was looking at me. <clears throat> and she sat down and I suppose it was her husband, very feeble. He was not disabled in the sense of needing a wheelchair, but he definitely was very shaky, very unsure on his feet. He looked like that he had had a severe experience in the medical world with his health. He was a little simplistic. I suppose he hadn't always been that way, but due to perhaps medicines or whatever. He looked very aged, maybe aged beyond his years, but I was sitting there watching him. And he got over to the table and he was about to sit down and his wife just railed on him. I mean, railed on him. And he, he had no idea what she was upset about. And finally she just said, it's on the counter, it's on the counter. And so he just kind of walked over there and walked over to the counter. He'd forgotten the little green marker. You know, Chick-fil-A has these markers that they have to bring out your meal. They have it. So he comes back with the marker and he, he, he just sits the marker on the table sits down <clears throat> and then they bowed their head to thank God for the food. And I was so thankful for that. And they asked Him to pray. And He just didn't pray, God, thank You for the food, Amen. He, he went on for like I don't know, 60 seconds, 75 seconds, thanking the Lord for the food and, and the time. And I sat there and I thought, what type of credibility does that wife have? That if she got up and said to me, I'd like to give you a gospel tract, I would think to myself, Lady, if this is what Christianity is about, I don't want it. Dads, we must be credible. We must bridle our tongues. And we must walk this worthy walk. We've got to. People are what? They're watching us. And no one sees us more intimately than in our homes. Our tongues must be unstained by the world. Inappropriate anger, uncontrolled rage, hurtful, insulting words, seeking to irritate our children or to nag them, Fathers, you don't have to nag your children. You're the dad. 
I remember giving my wife giving counsel to a lady who was upset about her children, and she was just nagging them and nagging them. And my wife just said, called her name and said, "You're the mother." And she said, "Oh yeah, I'm the mother." You don't have to nag. You only have to what? You have to say it. Unfair handling of situations. Petty handling of things in their lives. Scolding children for disappointments that are really your fault. And you know this. You know this, that many parents today try to live their unrealized dreams through their children. Now, there's no father sinless in this. And there's no mother sinless in this. And children, I want to address you just as a side note, even if your father and your mother don't rise to this type of standard in your own eyes, you are still responsible to respond to them in holiness. Their failure is not an excuse for your unholiness. You're to be holy. And I'm thinking of 1 Peter 3. You're to be prayerful for your parents. You are to be submissive to them. Now I want to turn to conclude to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And we're going to stop right here. I got this illustration from a man very familiar to us, that is Dr. Tim Berry. He wrote a little book, I don't know if the book's published, but I had a little PDF of it called The Spirit-Filled Family. And he gave this particular Old Testament illustration as an example of provoking children to wrath, to anger. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, in verse 24, you might recall that Saul was jealous over who? David. And David knew that Saul was out to kill him. But Jonathan, had, who was Saul's son, had recognized the Lord's promises and covenant with David. And Jonathan loved David. And David loved Jonathan. And Saul knew about this. And so they had a feast. David didn't show up at the table. It says in 1 Samuel 20, verse 26, Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. David's not clean. Surely David's not clean. Verse 27, It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty, So Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal either yesterday or today? Now note, Saul didn't use his name. That gives you a first hint that Saul's what? He's upset. Verse 28, 
Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger burned against who? Jonathan. It's his own what? It's his own son. And this is unrighteous anger. There is a righteous anger, but this is unrighteous. And he said to him, look at what he said, verse 30, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Jonathan answered Saul his father and said, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table. How? In fierce anger. And did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Here's what Dr. Barry brings out. One, Saul became angry. Verse 30. Then Saul insulted Jonathan's own mother. Everybody see that? You are a son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Then Saul wanted Jonathan to be inappropriate, ambitious, or envious over David. God had given the kingdom to who? To David. Jonathan was walking worthy of the promises of the Lord. John, uh, Saul acted shame. Uh, excuse me. Saul tried to spear his son Jonathan. That's unrighteous anger. Then Saul acted shamefully and unfairly toward David. David had done what? Nothing wrong. And Dr. Barry writes, quote, In summary, Saul was clearly angry and irritated with Jonathan, says all kinds of hurtful things to him, and even tries to kill him. Ironically, Saul's irritation with Jonathan is rooted in his own spiritual failures that caused him and his sons after him the kingdom of Israel. That's what Saul was ultimately angry about, his own spiritual failures. Fathers, we are to bring our children up in the nurture, in the discipline, in admonition or instruction of the Lord. And we cannot do that if we stir them up to what? To anger. Now we'll find out later when we get to God's own discipline. Discipline can be severe and discipline can cause children grief, etc., etc., etc. But grief is different from unrighteous anger. There's a difference there. May God give to us an understanding so that we might raise a godly generation 
for the Lord by using the means of which God has given us to do this. Let's bow our heads.